Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including the biggest jump in fuel efficient car sales in Australia since records began. Or is that the whole story? We road test a couple of Holden Commodore V8 station wagons and reflect on life without family car V8s from Holden and Ford. We catch up on a bit of news from subjects we have covered in the past, including Tesla's new Model 3, which has received a huge number of pre-orders. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including the TomTom Traffic Index. It says to measure congestion in most major cities, but is it really the truth? Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interview and road test by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program and an extended version of the quirky news. Look up Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. The latest figures on the fuel efficiency and pollution levels of new cars bought in Australia has produced two different interpretations. The National Transport Commission said that Australian consumers have bought a record number of fuel-efficient, low-emission cars, leading to the biggest year-on-year growth in the percentage of new cars sold since the NTC began keeping records. 4.7% of the new cars sold in 2015 were classified as low-emission vehicles, compared to just 2.8% in 2014. But for the increase in low-emission cars, there must have been some increases in the emission rate from other vehicles purchased. Auto News reports that the rate of decline for the Australian national average carbon dioxide emissions stalled last year, with the fall of 4 grams per kilometre no better than the results achieved a year earlier. Inter-Traffic Amsterdam, the world's largest exhibition for the road transport industry, has announced its Innovation Awards winner for 2016. The overall winner from 91 entries went to the Czech Republic's Cross Zlin in Vipo product. It addresses one of the most important aspects of the modern world of transport planning. We can now collect a lot of information, but how do we visualise what all this information means? The Invipo product is capable of visualisation, data aggregation, monitoring and integrating, allowing users to visualise and control the many interconnective systems within a city, making the concept of a smart city a working reality. The growing number of foreign drivers has prompted the New Zealand government and private organisations to launch a series of high-profile road safety campaigns. Tourism New Zealand has sponsored a road safety video fronted by Chinese celebrity influencer Huang Li, which has had more than 10,000 hits. The number of Chinese taking self-drive holidays has doubled over the past two years, and that's expected to triple by 2020. As common problems include tourists not understanding road signs and stopping suddenly to take photographs, 
The Automobile Association has launched an online driving test to prepare visitors for driving in New Zealand. The Automobile Association is also distributing an information booklet to Chinese tourists when they apply for New Zealand visas. In Ireland, they've just released a hard-hitting new ad from the Road Safety Authority which aims at making sure motorists look after their tyres as new figures reveal defective tyres have been a major factor in 71 road deaths between 2008 and 2012. Of the 850 fatal collisions in Ireland between these years, motorised vehicle factors contributed to 101 collisions, which was 12%. Of these, tyres were the main contributory factor, accounting for 8%. 7 to 24-year-old drivers accounted for almost half of the fatal collisions involving defective, worn, over or under-inflated tyres. The first race between fully autonomous cars is coming, and much sooner than we think. A championship called Robo Race is being established, and if all goes to plan, will host its first race later this year. Robo Race will be an exhibition style event supporting the Formula E Electric Vehicle Championship and hosting up to 10 teams, each with a pair of fully autonomous cars. While the cars will be identical, teams will be free to develop custom software to control them. Some may think that the racing will be boring because all the cars will be perfectly controlled by computers, but the perfection of automatic control has many years of development ahead of it. Ferrari is to have a third theme park, this time in China. The new park will join existing Ferrari theme parks, Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi, and Ferrari Land in Barcelona, Spain. The location for the new site has yet to be announced, although it is said to be one of the primary cities in mainland China. The parks aren't actually owned or operated by Ferrari, but rather by outside firms under licence. For the new park, Ferrari has entered a non-binding agreement with state-owned Chinese car maker Baek. And that has been the news. I've been driving a couple of versions of the Holden Commodore V8 station wagon, or to give it or them the correct title, a sports wagon. And sporty they are. Now, the first V8 that won Bathurst in 1967, it will be it was a Falcon. Holden won the next two years. And since that time, V8s have been a pivotal part of Aussie motoring. Now, the Commodore has evolved into a very competent car with a huge amount of power and space for a reasonably sized family. To get a Commodore wagon on the road, including all on-road costs, will set you back about 41000 for a small V6, but it goes up to about 63000 for the SSV Redline or Calais, either version of those. You can add a couple of grand for a range of extras. So should we make the most of these cars? As with the cessation of manufacturing in Australia, we will see a marked curtailing of large V8 family saloons. Paul Morell from the website practicalmotoring.com.au is an expert on all these things and he's here to tell us what he thinks. Paul, before we do anything, it is undoubtedly still a good family roomy car, isn't it? Yes, it is, David. It, it actually shows us where, where Holden could have gone in the future, how, how as they kept developing and improving, the cars they produced got better and better. 
but, you know, they were building them for, a, for an ever-shrinking ever market. It's a shame. Uh, the room in the front, plenty for the driver, but also for the second row of seats. There is just lovely room in there and a good boot space as well, well, in, uh, wagon space in what we're talking about. Not a seven-seater, of course. But the thing about it is this 6.2-litre engine. Uh, it's gone up in power over the last 6-litre V8 that they had uh, significantly. Yes, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. If we told someone 10 years ago that we'd be driving family cars with you know, 304 kilowatts of power and 570 newton metres of, of torque, they would have looked at us askance. I mean, they were, they were numbers you could only dream about years ago. And now these numbers aren't even that high. I mean, you can go the absolute extreme with the Commodore, of course, is the HSV, the GTS. And that's like ordering a Whopper burger with an extra beef patty on it. I mean, it's, got, <laughs> it's just got lunatic power and, and torque. The grunt has gone up from 260 to 304, just in this sort of family size one. Just by comparison, the first V8 Falcon that won Bathurst had 168 kilowatts. I know, and the motoring press were up in arms about, you know, putting these ultra-powerful cars on Australian roads. And, of course, it comes with an incredibly more basso profundo sound, rich and deep. Uh, not a high revving engine, but uh, it certainly uh, captures you audioly, you think? It certainly does. Um, it's, when you say not a high revving engine, it does spin to 6,600, which is not a bad effort for a, for a big V8. But as for that noise, yes, there's nothing like it. It's a, you know, I've said a V12 engine, you know, a high revving V12 engine might give you a little bit of a tingle in the trousers, but you know this V8 will give you a great thump in the diaphragm. It's just the most amazing thing. Um, it's 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 been done deliberately, of course. I mean, quite apart from I mean, a couple of years ago, the minute you bought a V8 Holden, you'd rush out and put a new exhaust system on it, more for the noise than for the for the performance enhancement. But now they've got uh, you know a low frequency induction baffle and it pipes sound into the cabin and a bimodal exhaust system that opens up. You know, it's even got a little sleeved hole in the exhaust tip that, you know, puts sound back underneath the body. I mean, they've really worked hard on giving it that sort of emotional sound and they've done a great job with it. I've got to say that uh, it's quite forceful in what, what it does. I had to look up the dictionary for a word that I better not say now, but it said that it was boldly aggressive or courageous. Actually, it was ballsy was the word. <laughs> and in many ways, I thought, this is the the situation with these cars, particularly when you rev it. Yeah. Look, this, it's the case with these cars that there really is not a great deal that's subtle about them, including the sound. Um, you know, if you, if you want to go down the high street without attracting too much attention, this is not the car you want to buy. If you buy it in a, a bright green or, you know, any of the other look-at-me colours and you, you blip the throttle, you will get a lot of attention and not all of it attention that you desire. Six-speed automatic transmission, does it work well? Yes, it does. I haven't driven the manual. Uh, in fact, I haven't driven a manual Commodore for quite some time. I found the six-speed auto was a perfect match for it. It's one of those cars that you know, it has so much torque and so much power that you just nail the throttle. And you sort of occasionally think, oh, I should be changing gears myself. You go, oh, why bother? just picks up and goes at whatever time and however, whenever you thump the throttle, it just gets up and runs. The manual, for example, I've always argued that this car probably doesn't lend itself to being a manual, though I've spoken to people who've driven them. I don't know if you have. And they've said that it's a really nice gearbox. But let's face it, the two top gears are overdrive gears anyway. Now, when they built uh, this car, they got some money from the Green Car Innovation Fund uh, to make the cars lighter. Really? <laughs> 
There's a, a slight contra slight contradiction here. Just a little. But of course they gave the V8 more power. But as, as I say, lighter and more efficient was the way to do it. Yet I've got to say that she does chew the juice. Oh yeah, yeah. It's look if you again. As I said before, if you want to drive down the high street and not attract attention, wrong car. If you're going to worry about, you know, keeping a little notebook and, and checking on your fuel consumption every week, wrong car. Yes. Yes. I think it's rated at about 13 litres per hundred. It is. I didn't think that I uh, hooned it uh, to any great degree, yet I was well over that figure, so uh, worse uh, uh, figure yeah. in that. It, Good. It wasn't just me then, because I was seeing I was seeing figures in the low 14s and, and a little higher. Yeah. Paul, always good to talk to you. Uh, lovely to have you. Haven't had for a little while, but uh, it's great to have you back. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. That's Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au, where we were talking about V8 Commodores, particularly the station wagon, for want of a better word, perhaps better called the sports wagon. And that was an edited version of our chat with Paul. If you would like to hear the full version, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Some of the subjects that we have covered on Overdrive have shown some recent developments. For example, we mentioned not long ago that Tesla, the American electric car manufacturer, would soon be releasing a cheaper model. Now the Model 3 electric sedan will start at a cost the equivalent of just over 46000 Australian dollars in the US. The CEO of Tesla, Elon Musk, has reported that they received pre-orders of 276,000 vehicles in just three days and 325,000 vehicles in just one week. The Model 3 has been designed to seat five adults comfortably and features a dash devoid of controls apart from a 15-inch floating touchscreen in the centre. Three weeks ago, we spoke with our colleague Brian Smith about public transport planning and how he is designing transport terminals as places of a wide range of activities, not just for getting on or off a train, a tram or a bus. Now in Oklahoma City, the historic Santa Fe train station is being enlarged into a multimodal transit centre with streetcar, buses, light rail, commuter rail and retail shops. Recognising the opportunity to create more livable, mixed-use places around existing and planned transit services, the US Federal Transit Administration has launched a transit-oriented development initiative to provide support to local leaders seeking to erect or revitalise neighbourhoods near transportation. In a recent news story, we noted that both Ford and General Motors were making major steps to being a modern provider of transport options, including fleets of cars that people might hire rather than own. Now Peugeot and Citroën are re-entering the US market, and the first phase of their plan of attack is to start up a ride-sharing company like Uber. To do that, it may partner with Belore, which has created vehicles for a popular car-sharing service in France called Autolib. 
They are not giving up on some people owning their vehicles. Once Americans see Peugeot and Citroëns on the streets, the company will consider leasing arrangements and then selling some vehicles to individual customers. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And here we are again with Brian Smith and Errol Smith to talk some unusual stories to do with the world of motoring and transport. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thanks, David. No worries, David. Now, TomTom has just put out their traffic index, measuring the congestion in cities around the world. The worst city was, in fact, Mexico, a city where in 59% of the cases uh, there was a congestion level, uh, which means extra travel time. I presume that means over the whole 24-hour period. So, obviously, that's good. Sydney came 30th. Some would uh, think that uh, we are working to try and improve that position. In fact, gentlemen, it's been said to me by uh, someone else that uh, you know Australia always wants to be number one. <laughs> Here we are falling behind. <laughs> falling behind. In uh, Look, uh, David, I've got to say the TomTom survey is a, a meaningless piece of garbage. Um, it's, it's got some real um, uh, methodology problems in it. Uh, look, it, it's uh, it's not really measuring congestion so much as the difference in speed between the free flow conditions and congested periods. And so it means that cities that have a lot of congestion all day, there tends not to be much of a difference between the peak and off-peak sort of congestion levels. So they actually get recorded as having less congestion. Um, they also assume that free flow uh, conditions are most effective at... at um, moving traffic and of course we know that's not the case that that as speed decreases you uh you have flow increase up to a point um and so you know this it also only includes trips made um you know by vehicles with the tom tom devices they they uh you know look only we know only around 10 percent of trips go to work or work trips um uh in addition to that um it depends on the mode split for different types of trips, different cities. So Sydney CBD, for example, you know, there's nearly 80% of people take public transport to there. So, you know, you're not dealing with, um, you really, you're only illustrating the problem from a car driver's perspective. Yes, and, but, and as but, well, but, if you're in a... But, 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 but Brian, TomTom's only interested in that market. Yeah, it's true. But, <laughs> but what they this comes out every year and they, and they say, look, you know, how bad these cities are. So, for example... You know, we're number 30. Well, Auckland, New Zealand is um, you know, supposedly more congested than New York. So New York comes in at something like 39 um, and, uh, and Auckland comes in, sorry, just at 40. So, so they're kind of uh, supposedly almost the same. And if, if you could think that New York and Auckland have the same congestion, I mean, that's, I've got a bridge I can sell you. So... So it's it's a cute thing and it gets people talking about stuff, but unfortunately their ranking, I think, is, is pretty rubbish. It comes to the point, and again, this is where I was talking to your colleague about, that we are getting a mass of information, but actually interpreting that misinformation is the real task. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that we can be swamped with numbers, 
But what does those numbers really mean? And, and I think, Brian, you have elegantly shown that these numbers need to be taken with a strong degree of context uh, and what they measure. Yeah, for. look, it's a sort of, these, this report is a sort of thing where you'll get uh, a National Party member who says, clearly we need more roads because our congestion is, is worse than New York's. So, yeah. look, I, I think that's the risk of it. You're exactly right. We had a lot of data. And you, you actually need to curate it. You need to explain, you know, what it means and be a bit careful about how you use it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Or you can just rank it from zero to 100 and uh, create an article out of it in a newspaper. <laughs> That's right. That's a very easy piece of journalism, isn't it? all done for you yeah particularly if they list the hundred we've you've more than taken up all the space but um, you have to be careful then on other measures like the best number of people in a train carriage or japan might have got that if you then consider what in and on a train well then india yeah. would clearly <laughs> would have that uh, so but maybe that's not the thing to aim for but uh, I, I still think this could promote some interstate rivalry because sydney's 30 whereas Melbourne's back in 55. So they've got a lot of work to do. They've got those wider roads. Yeah, I had someone ring me up the other day talking about Melbourne and how they hated it and thought it was a lot worse than Sydney, which is a perception, purely a perception rather than necessarily any scientific measurement of it. And this perhaps is not a scientific measurement of it either. Mm. Errol, royalty. Yeah, well, David, uh, an Aston Martin with more class than any secret agent could give is going up for auction next month. A 1954 Lagonda 3-litre drophead coupe owned by none other than Prince Philip. And while it never got an ejector seat, it was fitted with an extra vanity mirror for the Queen herself and a radio telephone. One of only 20 Mark I Lagondas made, it is expected to sell for £450,000 or about $850,000. Yes, but Brian, would you rush out to buy one, uh, given that it's been owned by Prince Philip? You, you, Look, you love him and royalty <laughs> in, in general, don't it's you? It's a lovely car. It is. Um, it's it is. a very lovely car. But the uh, uh, look, the Prince, um, the Prince edition. I'm not sure. It's uh, it's worth the extra. It's got the grey leather trim. That's an interesting colour with the green. Uh, but it's missing the radio telephone. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you know why. They took it out because Rupert Murdoch's people were hacking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it might be worth less having been owned by Prince Philip, although it might still be worth a lot in New Zealand. You never know. Ah, uh, yes. Given them keeping the uh, flag with the yeah. British thing on it. Well, it was always going to play second fiddle to the Queen's one, wasn't it? I noticed the Queen got a vanity mirror. I would have thought all of them would have liked one. My view on royalty, but uh, a royal warrant, that was one of the first sort of ones in the modern era, I think, that uh, Aston Martin sort of got a royal warrant to it. We don't see much of that now, do it, we? It was the first, the first one that Aston Martin got. Oh, okay, yeah. Royal warrant, what does that mean? You pay more. Yeah, I, I think the only ones I've seen are for marmalade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a, a Commodore Royal in Australia. Oh, really? Mm, it was put out when... No, quite seriously, it was a, a blue Commodore. It was put out when Charles and Diana got engaged. Ah, of course, yes. Oh, what was different about it? It had a four-cylinder engine which had no power to go anywhere, <laughs> which is symbolic of Charles oh, and oh. Diana getting married. That's fabulous. <laughs> now, uh, gentlemen, we did talk about the Google getting a patent to have a 
system for their automated cars that to help them avoid buses. In one case, they didn't. Brian? Yeah, David, we touched on this last week about the, we sort of obliquely mentioned um, Google had had its first at-fault crash and um, it hit a bus. And it was an uh, interesting story. It's, um, uh, it's, there's been more than a million miles, so sort of 1.6 million kilometres of autonomous driving uh, by Google's vehicles over the past six years, and they'd never had an at-fault crash. There'd been something like 17 crashes that were reported, and most of them involved humans bumping into the Google cars when they weren't expecting or expecting them to do something that they didn't then do. In this case, um, the uh, one of the um, executives was driving uh, a self-drive Lexus SUV, and, a, and a, there was a test driver in there as well. And uh, apparently the, the Google car saw some sandbags on the road. It merged across to the lane to its left at where there was a bus. Now, apparently the Google car assumed that the bus would slow down and, uh, and allow it to merge. The bus driver, the human, assumed that the Google car would stop trying to merge once it realised there was a bus there. So at the, um, uh, the princely speed of about two miles per hour, about sort of uh, almost four k's per hour, the, uh, the car gently smashed into the bus, which had been coming along at about 30 k's an hour in the adjacent lane. No injuries. There was a bit of damage to the um, to the Google car, some of the sensors and the and the bonnet. But the the interesting thing for me in this story is um, is that the Google car was anticipating something that another vehicle would do, which is uh, in, in a very interesting approach to take. I would have thought the the vehicle would be um, sort of monitoring what's going on, responding to what's happening, rather than making some kind of assumption that, oh, if, if I start to do this, then uh, this bus will slow down or will let me in. Um, what, what do you think the rules are in this kind of arrangement? about How do, how do you, you tell a, a car how to interact with other vehicles? That well, may well I, I, I've heard a bit about this um, previously, Brian, and, and one of the things they realised when they started developing these was if it was purely reactive... Um, it would often wind up just sitting at an intersection, never moving. So it had to be just a little bit pushy, or it would never actually mm, get I'd, anywhere. I'd because everyone would, um, it, it would give way to everything by default. Yes, if that I'd was read where what human drivers worth. wouldn't allow it to to change lanes, they would yeah. just speed up, and, and the car would just drive like a, an elderly person and and not actually um, change lanes. It was easy to to bluff. Well, gentlemen, uh, lovely to talk to you as always. Thank you once again for your time. You're welcome. No worries, though. And that's Brian Smith and Errol Smith talking some quirky stories to do with motoring and transport. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Paul Morell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features and interviews by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program or an extended quirky news segment by looking for Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.